Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 95. I am your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, my special guest is the wonderful and talented juggler, Cindy Marvel. Before I talk to Cindy, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. All right, sit back, drop everything, get ready for Cindy Marvel. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 95, my very, very special guest, Cindy Marvel. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Dan. Now, I've been to your, your circus festival before. Are you still living in uh, Boulder, Colorado? I am. And is the circus festival and circus school still operational, still going on? The Boulder Circus Center is still going on. We closed briefly during the pandemic last year, but we're then able to reopen and follow the guidelines. And to tell you the truth, we'd like to see the juggling festival and more of the juggling come back. But a lot of things are going on in the different fields that are represented there. And so we're happy with that. I know you grew up in the East Coast. I know your father was very accomplished. What, what did he do? My father, Richard Friedberg, is renowned for being a physicist. And we sometimes say that's a practical expression of the laws of physics that keep things together. And we kind of relate that to juggling sometimes. And this is on the East Coast. What, what city did you grow up in? New York City in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. And nice. my dad ca- taught at Columbia University my whole life. So I would practice juggling in later times in the gym there. And how did him being a physicist inspire you to juggle? My father juggled three balls and balanced different objects. And he still does this because he comes to the Boulder Juggling Festival that has often coincided with Father's Day in the past. And we had this dad's juggle free promotion because of that. So if they could juggle, they got in free. Right. The idea was to do something nice since it was Father's Day. If it had been on Mother's Day, we we could have done that. It uh, might not have benefited my mom so much as uh, she was very attentive to my juggling and helped me to get gigs and um, admired and encouraged what I could do with juggling, which was wonderful for me. Did you have any siblings that were in show business too? Yes, my brother and sister both have things connected to the performing arts. My sister, Eleanor Friedberg, Akka Sharita, having performed at some IJA conventions as a belly dancer, but also being a craftsperson and musician. And my brother, John Alex Friedberg, being interested in filmmaking and special effects. And he started doing that as a teenager and now resides in the L.A. area. There are so many talented people in your family Did we forget anybody? Are there any other relatives who are in the juggling world? There's a very talented juggler, Jonas Beauvais, who grew up in France, and he spent time as an audio engineer in New York City and also spent a season with the Circus Center doing some coaching and helping us there around the time my son was born. Since then, we've met up at a few festivals, such as Idlewild in California. His juggling really came into fruition independently. He saw me juggle three oranges once when I was a student abroad and he was about five. And then the next thing I knew, his grandmother, who's my father's cousin, was writing me saying that he was a teenager and juggling five balls. (laughs) So I really didn't have anything to do with it. But he's a phenomenal juggler who does a lot of um, what I would call newer tricks involving sight swap. He's tutored me in some of these. Because he's in Europe, we don't always see each other that often. He did uh, collaborate with a group Les Objects Volant. Mm-hmm. I've heard of them. Yeah, good group. Yeah. 
about moving objects quickly. And they won a silver medal at Cirque du Demon. Oh, nice. Yeah, very prestigious. Yes, I've never been myself, but I saw some of it when they posted it online. So I think it's amazing that somebody else independently became a juggler because, as we know, not that many people pursue this. Well, it reminds me of the story of uh, Francis Brunn and Ernest Montego, that they turned out to be half-brothers, and they both learned to juggle independently. So juggling is in our hearts, right? right? It's, we find it somehow. <laughs> Yeah, there, there are many ways I like to think to be a juggler. Maybe someday I'll write a book about this. <laughs> well, that'd be great. Your mom was very creative in her own way. Now, she had a very musical background. Can you tell us about that? Yes, both my parents uh, were musicians uh, in the sense of it was an accomplishment of theirs. They both play piano extremely well, and they are singers at a professional level. And they weren't trying to be solo opera singers, I gather, but they would perform Gilbert and Sullivan and opera arias and so forth in a chamber music sense that when musicians got together. And they were both voice students at Tanglewood, the music center in the Berkshires in Lenox, Massachusetts, before I was born. And this is how, kind of how they came together. And so they would play together and encourage us musically to play instruments. Now, I have in my notes that she played piano for one of your very first juggling routines. What kind of music did she play? She played Scott Joplin tunes because they were becoming popular again then. There was a book out that had the maple leaf rag and others. She taught herself to play these. And she also played the classic circus music, dun, 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 which you may remember yourself, Dan, before Cirque du Soleil style. Well, that was the stereotype of the juggler when we came up because uh, you were talking about the 80s a lot, that when people would come by you, they'd go, da 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 which I think is March of the Gladiators, but they only associated jugglers with circus. And so it wasn't a very, uh, it was a very dismissive kind of sound to hear, wasn't it? Right, and that gets interesting because in our era and a little before, juggling had really undergone this renaissance and moved into new vaudeville and everything. And yet the public still associated with circus. And then I came up with the name Boulder Circus Center here for our studio space because we were working in alliance with aerialists and other kinds of performers. And I saw that vaudeville was sort of becoming a little bit more obscure to the public at that point, and that it didn't so much include the aerial acts and all these different companies that were so strong in Boulder. And so if we wanted people to feel included, I felt like circus would be the term to use. Well, when you talked about new vaudeville, you must have been very interested in juggling because at a very young age, at 16 years old, you got to train with three masters of new vaudeville. Tell me about your experience at the Antic Arts Academy in SUNY Purchase. The three masters of new vaudeville, Bob Berkey, Fred Garbo, and Michael Motion, were at the time collaborating as performers in New York City. They were doing a show called Fool's Fire. Before that, I had seen Michael Motion in the Big Apple Circus. I was only 14 then and had recently learned to juggle four balls. I got home and my mother suggested, if you really want to study with Michael Motion and follow this through, then look him up in the phone book and see if you can call him. That's when we had phone books, right? And I was kind of shy then, but this is how determined I was. I found him in the phone book. Yeah. He was listed. He lived in lower Manhattan then in the Bowery. I grew up way uptown and called him. And he took the time to answer the phone and chat with me a little about juggling. Nice. And he said that he might be teaching again in the future. 
because he was busy at the time with theatrical work. And sure enough, about six months later, a brochure was passed around the New York Juggling Club about the Antic Arts Academy at SUNY Purchase, about half an hour away, away from Manhattan. And when I was 15, by that time, I was juggling five balls well and four clubs. So that's where I was technically. And there was no question that they thought I was good enough technically to be in the program. However, it wasn't designed for teenagers. Ultimately, they had a couple of older teenagers and they assigned us a chaperone and put us together in the dorms. And so, but we were doing all the same a program for college students and adults. And many of those became people I was very close to later as performers who were in this program. Uh, some of the other students included Robert Nelson and Michael Menes and sorry, Paul Anderson. The reason it wasn't for teenagers because this was actually uh, a sleepover. Is that correct? You stayed in the dorms. We did. So it was, again, it was designed as a program for adults. So they, they let me into it, okay, because I, there weren't that many kids in juggling then, and there weren't all these programs for kids. Later, I taught at the Big Apple Circus School, but that was just for kids who went to a certain school in New York City in East Harlem. It wasn't something I could have signed up for as a student. And so there really wasn't anything like that. By the time uh, the juggling scarves of Professor Confidence went around and the complete klutz book, I'd already learned three balls by then. Took me a long time. A lot of other things I learned faster than three balls. You were definitely a precocious child. At a very early age, you were in a PBS special. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was very exciting for me. And it, it was asking me to expand to the edge of my abilities because you had to do some acting along with it and even some drawing and painting. Hmm. It was organized by Elizabeth Suedos, who wrote the Broadway show Runaways that people might be familiar with. And I should add that very sadly, she died in recent years of cancer. Uh, and she's written a book called The Myth Man, which I highly recommend a novel. You could probably look up Runaways online. And she was guiding us through, she had a grant for a special called What Do Children Think Of When They Think Of The Bomb? Hmm. And my act is now on my website at cindymarvel.com from that TV show. So we would meet with her for six weeks. We would workshop this. And she was looking for kids who had a special talent they could exhibit, but who would also join in all these exercises that we did together. And so they would animate our artwork and they had us tell stories about what we thought of nuclear war, because the theme was about the effect of the arms buildup on children and what we had to say about it politically since I had had some of this in a high school ethics class that the teacher was interested in, uh, I put together an act based on this, and I wrote my own act. Yeah, I watched it this afternoon in preparation for this interview. So I recommend people go to cindymarvel.com and watch it online there. They can see a very young Cindy really talking in a very heartfelt way about how she feels about uh, nuclear war. I enjoyed it. Thank you. In my notes, I also had that you played cello and studied ballet. So you had this very early grounding in theater and music. Has that informed your juggling for the rest of your career? It really did. And I know that I talked about this in an interview with Bill Giddes in Juggler's World. When I learned juggling, I would have various mentors as I went along. But very often I was on my own how to get to the next point in juggling and exactly what exercises to do. And just from a technical standpoint, the fact that you tended to do things four times or you, you tended to do things on both sides. Music, not so much necessarily on both sides as dance, but say in ballet, you would do the 
the right side, and then you'd be sure to do everything on the left side. And again, you don't do every single thing on both sides and juggling, but a lot of things you do. And so I knew something about following exercises and getting better at things that way. And then there's the artistry side of things that, you know, if you're juggling and something is set to music, it certainly helps if you know something about how music works to arrange your work to music. And with dance, you know, the connection, I only took ballet at first, but later I took all different kinds of dance. And more and more as I moved into adulthood, I took different kinds of dance. And sometimes intentionally, techniques like the Lamone, the Jose Lamone technique or the Isadora Duncan technique, they're very different, but they lead more with the upper body. And I felt like that would help me to figure out the physics of juggling and movement, which we know is very tricky. Well, you have wonderful style when you perform. It's very lyrical. And it seems like poetry also plays a big part in your development. In fact, even your name comes from a poet. Tell us how you came about that name and what poetry means to you in your juggling. Yes, well, my mother's name, Leslie Candell, that's her maiden name. And my father is Richard Friedberg, which is my maiden name, the way things work. And I chose the name Marvel when I was 22, before the competition at the IJ that year. I had graduated from college and was setting out to continue my career, right? I had worked at the summers in college as a theme park juggler and on the streets of Europe and so forth. Now I was in the real world, as it were, at gigs and present myself. And I wasn't part of a group then. And so my own name really was the name of my show. And as the New Yorker magazine put it, I felt like I needed some extra pizzazz from this name and something mm -hmm. connected to juggling. And I was talking to my parents about this one night and they gave the idea their blessing. But the name Marvel, the idea came about because I do a certain number of routines to poetry. And Andrew Marvel, or Marvell, you could say, I guess, was uh, a 17th century poet and happened to be one of the poets that I juggled to. So I'd recite the poem and the juggling would illustrate the poem. I started doing this basically in college. Let's talk about the decision that you decided to become a professional juggler and how that went over with your family. How'd that come about? Yes, well, I was fortunate in that, you know, my parents being artistic themselves, my father's a university professor and my mother a music journalist. She had many careers, though. She was also a stand-up comedian before that. And before that, before I was born, she taught in the public schools and uh, was very encouraging of her students, I should say, who she reunited with later. And some of them had become artists and so forth. And so they were encouraging of people in the arts. They were always with university students who were trying to do something different with their lives or my mother interviewing all these artists or being a performer herself. And so it wasn't, even though it was very different from what they did, the idea that somebody wanted to do something like that probably went over more naturally than it might have in some families. But even my parents after college would say, well, maybe you should see if some office needs your help with something or something. Hmm. And later on, I did enough office work, believe me, to uh, fulfill that. But I was trying to put it all into performing then. And well, I sometimes that lifestyle is a bit erratic in when you have work and when you should feel like you want more work or you don't or whatever. But I uh, was always engaged in trying to get work and took every single job that came my way if I was available for it. Now, before <laughs> we talk to about the uh, IJ Championship, which is a, a big moment, I also competed that year. Let's talk about some of these early gigs. What were some memorable early jobs before you kind of got established? 
What did you perform in Japan, for instance? I performed in Japan first in 1989. Again, there were some years that were so full of things that it's going to sound like it was too many things in one year, as I'm sure many of us jugglers have. I was at New Holland Village, where a lot of performers have been, and they would have a big group of performers who went over together, although I was a solo act within that group. And I did that twice at New Holland Village. Later, they started another park in Sasebo, Bush. The first gig I did was for seven weeks, and the second one was for more like six months. And those are a lot of shows per day. How many shows a day were you doing? Yeah, uh, usually four shows a day. But for a while, we would do five during the busy season when they'd have more people there and could have more shows during the day. So that's what you call uh, paying your dues, right? Six months, four or five yeah. shows a day, running your routines. That must have been a good experience for a young juggler just starting out. Yeah, it really was. And even though I performed before and worked at theme park for a summer in college, Kings Island in uh, Cincinnati, I auditioned for that when I was a student at Oberlin in a dramatic snowy bus ride that I took a long time getting home from, but I uh, <laughs> the audition <laughs> to go back over the summer. But it was still, it was early on for me, and yeah, it was great opportunity because you would do a 20-minute show to music that was like a street stage show. Yeah. And the audience spoke Japanese and really only spoke English as they would come up to you and want to practice for school. So you couldn't just talk the way we're talking now. Staff there would help us as interpreters or well-wishers to write some jokes in Japanese and tell us what might work. And at one point when they had, in more recent years, the earthquake in northern Japan, I had put something on Amazon as a sort of fundraiser of posting shows from Japan in the late 80s, early 90s. Let's talk about your experience at the IGA Championship. So you have this wonderful sort of training at Antic Arts and these professional experiences. Was this your first IGA performance or had you been at festivals before? I had been at IGA festivals and conventions, as they called them then, since the one in SUNY Kerchief mm. in 1983 when right. I was a student at Antic Arts. And we were also entertaining the festival, as it were, because we would sometimes volunteer as ushers for the various events and everything. So it was very exciting to be there at that time. Then the next year, I competed in the juniors in Las Vegas. And fortunately for me, a friend from high school wanted to go along with me because my parents were kind of concerned that I would be going alone to Las Vegas since they were in Massachusetts for the summer, musically inclined um, uh, summers there. And I, from that point forth, finished forth, but <laughs> from that point onward, I should say, I definitely went to pretty much any juggling festival I could get to. I used to go to the Amherst Festival at Hampshire College. That was where Todd Smith first introduced me to a new kind of juggling club he made. And I should give a little homage to Todd and his family, as we were all very sad that he passed away this past year. Well, I think it all sums up Todd with his nickname. He was called the Juggler's Friend. And his table was Club Todd. I think that sums up the warm and friendly guy he was and the, the warm and friendly place people have for him in their hearts who are in the juggling community. So I agree. We all should have a homage to... Uh, the wonderful Todd Smith. That's very nice of you, Cindy. Uh, that's neat. So, I mean, going to these juggling events really was a key part of my life as a juggler. And as I've said, all the encouragement I got from jugglers and the tutoring and the education and so on really made me who I was for the public in what I was doing. 
And so for me, those two worlds were both very important. And what place did the competitions have for you? Were you always interested in the competing? I was, I think. Um, wasn't it, you know, the very first convention I was at was in 1983. I was 16 then, my second year in Antic Arts. And so I only had one more year to compete because you had to be under 18 in juniors. Yeah, back in the day, yeah. And I probably, if there had been another competition available, such as the ones that you later started, the three club contest, the prop contest, if there had been something available, I would have competed before. But the very next thing I had to do was either the teams or the solo competition. Well, I wasn't juggling in teams professionally then, although I was passing with people and performing at Oberlin where I went to college with other jugglers. But professionally, I was a, had solo experience, and that's where my technique was the more advanced. And so I had to get ready to do the Lucas Cup competition, the U.S. Nationals, the very big, the international world championship, et cetera, as it's been called different things over the years. Well, what some jugglers might not know who listen, back in the day, uh, when, when Cindy's talking about when we used to compete, they had a juniors competition and what they call seniors or individuals. And you had to be under 18. And once you went over 18, you had to be then an adult and compete in the individuals, which was a lot more difficult. But then you went and actually competed. I believe, I believe it was Baltimore. Was that the year uh, that you won the whole thing? Yes, 1989. So tell me about that experience and how you prepared for it and what the theme of your act was. Well, it was really a great thing to turn my ambitions to. And yes, I was nervous. We'll say that leading into it. But uh, I knew I was going to do it by that time. I had a lot of people encourage me. And I'd been working on this act while I was working at New Holland Village in uh, Nagasaki, Japan. And I would make some extra practice time there. And I was putting together a musical soundtrack. I got the idea to use Rhapsody in Blue. My mother being in the music field, a lot of people sent her audition tapes and promotional tapes. By tapes, I mean cassettes of music in those days. And I had a couple of the Gershwin waltzes that she had sent me. And that is how those came to be combined in my soundtrack with Rhapsody in Blue. Because if you know the orchestral piece, it's over 20 minutes long. That would be a short version. The, the version I had was a little faster, actually. It was a cassette I picked up in Germany in my travels. So I put together my own uh, soundtrack for this, choosing out the pieces and combining the waltzes because I felt like the music had too big an orchestral finish for a solo act for me to do, and that I needed something a little more delicate to bring off the solo uh, at the ending. And where I juggled this piano streamer that I made from scratch. It was a little heavier than you'd want a streamer to be, so I really had to put a lot of energy into it. No, I remember because it sort of tied the whole theme together. It looked like a, a piano keyboard. Now, what was your feeling going into the competition? Did you think you had a chance to win? We're just going for experience. What were you expecting? It's a really good question. And I think it really ran the gamut from this could be a total disaster where I feel bad because I drop everything. Yes, you're welcome for the plug. And then I, or it could be just this fantastic experience where it went well or well enough. Now, I was rehearsing for this with a practice group that was amazingly talented and everybody had actually already won this event. I believe, or, or would shortly thereafter win the event. Like I had Tony Duncan as a juggling coach officially back when I was a senior in high school. Uh, Tony was in Europe at the time of the IJ in 1989. But I was practicing with Alan Jacobs, Barrett Felker of the Gizmo Guys, and Mark Neither, who was based in New York City at the time. 
And I found this practice space at Union Theological Seminary because we'd all been at the Columbia gym, but it was a little too rowdy and noisy to practice to music. And I'd taken this aerobics class in this big room with a blue ceiling. It had no air conditioning. That really helped prepare us for SUNY Purchase, which was partially air conditioned. Hmm. It was very hot, wasn't it? They had, they had a glass ceiling. Yeah. It was like, it was like, like a greenhouse. So I was practicing. I worked my way up to practicing six hours a day. Wow. And I was very happy with that because I'd read as a juggler, you know, I knew that, well, if you really want to do this stuff professionally, whether it's clown college or juggling, or you have to be at your point, a point in your life where you can practice six hours a day. And in college, it was a big deal for me to practice two hours a day. Right. And that was where I learned five clubs and seven balls. Was, and many of the tricks that I was solid with later, I learned in college. But then to practice six hours a day was new for me. And so I knew I was doing well if I stayed longer than Barrett because he's known for being so committed to juggling as a technician. But they all, they all gave me some different advice about this act, the artistry, the practice techniques, uh, and um, whether it was getting too over the top with too many tricks, especially four club tricks. I had an insane number of tricks. And they wanted me to do the best act. And so they would informally coach me on this. Of course, I had everything to put together of what I what I'd learned about things. I wasn't having a bad time physically, although afterwards I had tendonitis from this time period and I was, I had, I was tight around my shins and stuff, sort of a lead into some problems I had later. I was having a pretty good week otherwise, it being, however, it timed out in my life at that time. I was really hoping that I could have a good performance. I really didn't have that much riding on how the judging or the scoring worked out. I certainly was not even brave enough to dream that I could win this. Okay. I thought, if it went super well, maybe I could possibly win a bronze medal. But really what I wanted was not, I wanted to have a really good performance. Okay. And I, I knew that it was a big ask because I had not uh, really performed it too many times. I performed it at a couple of festivals and some of the acts I had done as separate pieces at Holland Village, but not all of it together. And so it wasn't like I was a dyed in the wool professional who had always done this one act and was now presenting it. And so I felt like there really wasn't such a guarantee of how well it would go because you know the years it takes with those and, and the experience of performing it. It really was only two weeks before that I was getting no drop runs in practice because you figure if you can't do it perfectly in practice, you're probably not going to do it perfectly in performance. You have to have a little leeway there. So you do it great in, in practice and then if it's a little bit off in performance, it's still great. Well, I think everything came together because I think that was part of the story was that we knew you weren't a, a professional who did this all the time. You sort of came out of the blue and you had a theme act where a lot of people just got up and juggled. Uh, your movement was very nice and, and your ability to juggle five clubs has always been super solid. And now we know why. Six hours of practice, six months, all of these shows. So it really came together in this one moment and you really were embraced, I thought, uh, by the community. I thought it was a very warm reception and very well-deserved win, even though you did beat me. but. It was very nice. It was a very nice moment for you and for your juggling. You know, you were very encouraging me, to me then, and I admired that the way jugglers, even when they were competing against each other, as I noticed in juniors, would, would help each other that way. Um, because I, I was kind of having a, a rough week in, in um, keeping all the emotions together to do something like that. And I um, uh, did have it go well, although it felt very different from the practices. Obviously, the audience being so there and so into it meant the world to me. 
and to do something that was remembered still and people still talk about it or see the video later. I never thought that more than 10 years later, I hear something about them. Uh, and, and that I got the point of the routine across. You know, it's interesting because I was reading your book about street performing, Alex the Great. Oh, another plug. That's good. I love that, Cindy. Plug away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, because I was also a South Street Seaport performer then, in fact, one of the gigs I already had lined up won the Lucas Cup in, in 1989 was at the New York Renaissance Festival. I was there for two more summers after that. And also at South Street Seaport. And, you know, it gives you things to do in a pinch, right? Like in a, call it like a clutch moment, literally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the very last catch, seriously, I was over the moon that I pulled through the four club act. For instance, I was going to run in the beginning. I always ran across the stage. And on that occasion, I actually walked. It was fine. It went with the music. It's because I yeah. was sort of tied around my cast. I thought, oh, no, gosh, for me, I should mess this up. I better mm. just do what works here, right? Do what feels like it's going to work. By the time I got to five clubs, I had a decent run with five, okay? Yeah. It wasn't the best ever, but I had a save, okay? And it was long enough. And then, though, I wasn't able to end in the pose that I had worked out, where I would throw the last club in a triple, spin around, catch it, but I was going to drop my arm down in back of me and then bring it up with the club. And I had my foot on the ball of my foot so that one knee was a little raised and my, my arm hmm. would sort of drop with the club and come around. Something right. we learned to do in the Michael Motion class. Yeah. <laughs> at SUNY Berger. A little touch and classy. It's what I would call anti-gravity juggling where you drop your hands. And, and hmm. by the way, the, the walking kind of moves, this arm circles I did were an outgrowth of exercises that he had taught us that he said it was okay to do, to do our thing with. Uh, moves that he taught us. But that move was something I'd come up with in choreography. But what actually happened was the throw was very low because sometimes I would do that for dramatic reasons in my street show. And sure. somehow that street performer in me came out at the last moment and I threw the club like that and I was going to have to catch it very low. So I turn around, squat down, catch the <laughs> club and it, it came out of my hand a little. Yeah. What they call juggling in baseball, right? Sure, sure. You bobbled it. Where it comes out of your hand a little, and then you catch it. So yeah. I had this moment where the whole thing, like I get through the whole thing essentially with no That's a generous description of it, but at least the, most of it. Then the very last catch, it just would have been too bad if that had fallen on the floor, right? Even if I still wanted to something, it would have been too bad. And so I saw the whole thing hanging in the balance for a moment, and then I caught it and jumped up. Improv. It was an improv moment. But that's a nice moment, isn't it? When you make that final catch... And you know it's over. I remember the glee you had with that streamer. You talk about jugglers embracing you and giving you support, but in your career, you've offered support and embraced a lot of different jugglers in their career. Tell me about your experience with Laser Vaudeville and how all these great jugglers got to be part of it. Right, well, Laser Vaudeville, Carter Brown, the man I married, started in 1987. And it's actually no coincidence that that is the same year Cirque du Soleil got started because when he was a student at the Delarte School for Physical Theater in Northern California, Nicolette Nam was in his class and Jean, and they were some of the early performers in Cirque du Soleil. Mm. And Nicolette Nam went on to be a casting director for many years. Oh, okay. They had a duo juggling act also. And so Carter was very much coming from a theater background and also had been in Ringling Clown College and toured with Ringling Brothers. So many of the performers who joined Laser Vaudeville either were ringling uh, clowns or had that background from the clown college, 
or Del Arte students in the past uh, because it was an all-around theater show. Now, I've seen some videos from years before I joined, because again, I joined in 1994, essentially. So there were, uh, it had already been in existence for seven years. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was a college student during a year abroad in 1986, 87, and so on. So I was still in college then, Carter being uh, seven years older. Yeah, I, it only came on ra- my radar when you got involved. I, I mean, I wasn't... Yeah. It became very popular and had a lot of uh, tours, but I wasn't aware of the early early start of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were touring a lot gradually. I saw a photo of the very first Laser Vaudeville show, and I think it was a more informal show at a, at a school or college, or, or maybe it was even at Putney where, where Carter went to college and where our son Theo wants to go next year. It metamorphed first into a show that was doing a lot of college dates, and then there was an agency, Bill Fegan Attractions, Artists International, that helped them get more onto the theater circuit. And as it got on more onto the theater circuit, it became more kid-oriented than collegiate-oriented, per se, in right. the humor and the puppetry and all these kids constantly cheering it on with the lasers hmm. and everything. It somehow became a family show. <laughs> well, you became part of the family circuit on these uh, theater tours. It's true. A lot of other jugglers joined, which was exciting for me to work with because I collaborated previously in juggling groups and that's what gave me the experience through doing things like the Pickle Family Circus or the Howard Katz Fireheart Trio or the Wendy Osterman Dance Company or all these ensemble experiences I had. This made the difference really in my being asked to join Laser Vaudeville. But you worked a lot as a solo. Did you decide at that point that you liked working as a team better or is this just sort of going to be a lark that turned out to be kind of uh, the main direction of your career? Well, I can tell you, actually, it would have been a lark if I hadn't had a lot of experience in teams that I didn't have. The first time I auditioned for Laser Vaudeville, it was decided, well, it wasn't really exactly what they were looking for, but maybe they'd be interested in the future. Oh, so you had auditioned before. I see. That's funny. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The same thing happened with the Pickle Family Circus. When Judy Finelli was directing, she'd encouraged me to apply. And, and she said, well, you had a really good audition. We really want to use you, but maybe in a few years. I was young then. There were other people who were the more obvious candidates or fit in well. Well, you started so young, you got you had to get some seasoning. I mean, you were very talented, but you had to get experience. Well, also, I, I hadn't had group experience then, the right. way I did later. Because I also was a team member of Darn Good and Funny. Oh, right. And I know you remember competing with them, but I remember Rispini Brothers, you and Barry Friedman, mm-hmm. competing way back in SUNY Purchase. And, you know, when I would go home and close my eyes from that, I would see juggling clubs still going back and forth. And I would see the respected juggling clubs going back and forth. Oh, that's funny. In my mind's eye. Um, because I was so juggling obsessed the way we get when we're young, right? I hope you didn't hear, oh, Barry, look how it lies there. Yeah, but I was nothing. Not I was, a nightmare. I was learning club passing and antic arts. Like I was working on, mm-hmm. I could do double throws and passing. And I could pass seven and that kind of thing. But I hadn't done so many ensemble performances as I, as I built up doing to where I spent a year with Darn Good and Funny after we'd all met in Japan and knew of each other from convention. And I spent a year in residence with them in Oklahoma and then touring. We performed at the World Trade Center. We performed in Holland at the Orange Boom Festival, many places. And that gave me a lot more experience. We also won a silver at the IJ and team. I remember that. They were previously team champions. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot more to offer, and I had this drum act, Drumble, mm-hmm. that I started performing. It was inspired by the Pickle Family Circus, but I came up with a, an act I did with Wendy Osterman 
She is actually my dad's cousin and also a choreographer of renown in New York City, has her own modern dance company. Nice. To do something different, she worked with me for a season. And we performed our show at DTW. Same oh. theater I'd seen Fool's Fire perform years before. So things like that kept happening to me that were tremendously <laughs> exciting. Yeah. As I would follow in the footsteps of these legendary performers. Well, it shows how you combined all these things into your act and your great style. Let's talk a little bit more about Laser Vaudeville and some of the people who came in. So I'm going to mention a name. You're just going to give me a little idea of what they were like to work with. Let's start with Reed Bellstock, who went on a course to work with uh, Warren Hammond. So what, what was Reed like? Uh, was he as zany as he is on stage? <laughs> yeah, pretty much in a good way. Reed's a wonderful, friendly man to know. Yeah. And juggler. And as, of course, he's very uh, multi-talented. I remember he auditioned, as it were, with us when we were doing a show at the Arvada Center because Reed is, is from the Denver area, uh, from Aurora. And that was before we lived here and had the Circus Center, so we didn't know what would happen. What Reed could contribute was, uh, in addition to his clown solo, a lot of interesting choreography in the club act that kept evolving. So we had this club passing act where there were a lot of interceptions. Mm. And they were doing things like that before. And I had done interceptions that were very creative with a juggler choreographer named Howard Fireheart in the East Village when I was part of his dance theater performances with juggling. And we had this trio that would make use of a lot of creative interceptions. Some of them really only Howard could do because they involved jumping around and doing acrobatics like a break dancer would uh, that were sort of unique to Howard. But others were things that I helped to initiate or different styles, ways of doing this. It's on one of the IJ videos where we did Club Renegade. I remember seeing it. The idea is that there's a very solid pattern going on and a person like a sort of a clown character like Reed would be is taking the clubs out and putting them back in in a very creative, funny fashion. Right, and, and Reed, Reed sort of upped that to another level, as had a previous performers, uh, Seth Bloom and Jeff Taub that I worked with, and Randy Johnson, who was in the show when I joined. And, you know, they all had different styles, and whether it was more dance or more clown or different tricks they would do, like Seth could do a Wally walk, so that became part of it. If people are familiar with this, very complicated. I only did that part once or twice myself. You know, actually, this is interesting. This gave me a chance to do something I like, which is being the receiver. Now, whether it's the jugglers are a little spaced out and I like to kind of just be there and receive things, there's a little more to it. Growing up, I really liked catching. I would play any ball game that involved catching Hmm. before I knew I was into juggling. And I was very courageous about catching any ball that came my way. Even if I was going to get a little hurt doing it, I would catch the dodgeball or the baseball or whatever it was, right? And so I think being on the receiving end, it appealed to me as a catcher. I actually liked having to straighten out patterns and give back a better throw than the incoming, what I would call the turnaround of the pattern. I had a very good way of turning around to sort of even things out to make the throw back. Well, I know exactly what you're saying because I do the same thing when I pass with Owen Morris. We take uh, turns being what we call the machine. So one guy can do tricks, and it's very fun to try to correct them and throw them back perfectly. So I really can experience and, and feel what you're talking about, the joy of just catching and just being the catcher while someone else... Like, like Reed gets to do all the kind of fun, dramatic clowning stuff. And it's great passing with the passing zone because they actually use the same clubs or similar that we all used to use. <laughs> but they're so good that I can get to another level when, when uh, great passers are passing with me because uh, I didn't know that I'd spend so much time passing clubs. It's something I miss now because I don't always have a group that I'm working. You know, it, used, it became such a part of my daily life. And like you said, I, 
I could do my solo work as well in these theater shows. So when I went into a collaboration, it was because I could also do solo juggling. Because some people were even a little disappointed sometimes because there weren't so many female jugglers, as we were saying. Let me ask you about a couple of more jugglers who you had an opportunity to work with uh, in Laser Vaudeville and also in the Circus Center. Tell me a little bit about Nicholas Flair. What kind of juggler was he? Nicholas Flair attended the Montreal National Circus School and also Brown University, where he was in a dance company. And so he had a lot of diverse talents to bring to this. The act he performed in Laser Vaudeville, he actually put together in Montreal. That was his graduation piece. And it was a cigar box act with a Mondrian backdrop, that, as in the artist that made abstract box shapes. Piet Mondrian, yes. Yes, it went with his act where he combines acrobatics and some original moves with cigar boxes. And he also did the group routines with us. And he was in Laser Vaudeville when we did two seasons of off-Broadway shows at the Houseman and the Lamb, two theaters uh, near 42nd Street. Let me ask you about one more juggler you had an opportunity to work with, because I believe he went on and helped you also in the Circus Center. Tell me about working with Sven Jorgensen. Yes, Sven is quite uh, a character who is known as a great performer in the Boulder area. I should say a real-life character, as we know. Often when we write about juggling, it seems all fantastical, but we know uh, these acts and people to be real. And Sven had run a studio previously in the area, Aquila Movement Arts, and at one point, Laser Vaudeville was rehearsing there. This is where the juggling club met, and there were some other aerialists we came to know rehearsing there also. And it was during that time that we had some shows during the summer that weren't so much a part of the road tour, and so Sven did some Laser Vaudeville performances with us at the Valar Center in Colorado, among others, and is just a very talented individual in both acrobatics, aerial moves. He was a WJF performer also. A few years after his studio time there had come to an end, and we were shifting around and didn't really have a place to rehearse as we had moved to Colorado, that we saw the Circus Center property as people who knew about these things got us interested in it and um, embarked on this journey to renovate it. And Sven was the first of our on-site managers and is still involved in this. And I should give a shout out to Fractal Society, formerly Fractal Tribe and the Starfish Organization. These are performers who have also helped to manage the Circus Center and been involved in numerous productions and bringing together a lot of events and community goodwill at the Circus Center. And our newest addition to this team, Jonathan Canby, who is only just getting started in the upcoming months to be on site managing the Circus Center and helping to put together programming. I look forward to seeing what goes on in the Circus Center. I'm sure when things start back up, you'll have wonderful classes and programs and people can contact you to learn about juggling and all sorts of different circus arts. And I'm very excited to see where the Circus Center goes in the future. Well, let's talk about uh, Carter's solo work because... He was also one of the few hoop rollers. So he had a very nice hoop rolling solo. Was he doing that when you joined? Because that's something that you only saw like Bob Bromson do. So it was a very good old school act. Was that something he was doing when you joined Laser Vaudeville? Yes, very much so. In fact, he had competed in Monte Carlo. He was one of the only Americans to compete in the Silver Clowns Awards right, oh, okay. at Monte Carlo. It was a very solid, very professional act he had. That's, that's how I first became aware of him. I think Dick Franco won an award at this, and Dick, mm -hmm. Dick Franco was one of Carter's 
inspirations. Uh, I competed with Noelle in the juniors, actually, when she was 11. Oh, Noelle Franco, yeah. And so they were very inspiring to us. And Noelle was one of the trailblazers in the documentary about women who juggle. Yeah, Patricia Leverton's uh, documentary. But Carter had really gotten known for his hoop, hoop act. And I had seen the collection of hoop rollers in Carl Heinz-Siefen's films and thought that was a really fantastic branch of juggling. It is. It's not very explored. Yeah, it's hard. And I hadn't tried it much myself, and I still haven't gone beyond the basics because Carter could do it so well. <laughs> Too bad, because you can do group acts with it. But Carter was really the only person doing a full seven- or eight-minute act. Like a lot of people like Kip Summers and different people have done a few, a few of the hoop rolling moves. But to do four down the back like Carter or to do a whole eight-minute act with it. So when someone joins Laser Vaudeville like a Jeffrey Daymont, they're part of the group dynamic, but they also get to do their own routines. What was Jeffrey Damon like? He's known as a cigar box master. So he would do his cigar box routine in the, in the show, context of the show, or would you do all of your own material? Yeah, that's a really good question. And this is something where I could really shine and develop a skill I had that I didn't necessarily know I had to help choreograph acts for jugglers who were using props that I couldn't even do very much with myself. But sure. I still had ideas and could help them put together a, a new custom-made solo act. I remember, Dan, you are telling me years ago that that was one of my talents, and I should tell people who wanted to hire me that I would custom-make them an act because I could do this. And so that was very exciting for me to work with new performers. And if they were doing a physical comedy solo, I probably didn't have as much advice or help to offer. But it was really exciting helping Jeffrey Damont because he's already so renowned for boxes. But he was using different music that a composer, Jesse Mono, had written for our show. And so Jeffrey had the opportunity to work with new music and why not put together a new act? Nice. Yeah. So I had some ideas just for how he would move around and poses and so on with the boxes. These were all tricks that he had obviously worked in and, and originated. So I worked in a similar way with Warren Hammond, who was doing a devil stick routine. Uh, again, I can't do most of the tricks they're doing even, but but I had ideas for how it should move around, how it should use the space. Just like I had worked so hard to learn myself over the years, how to make a club routine that goes to all four corners of the stage. But you have got to think that a stage is like that because if it's the kind of act where it's appropriate, like if you're doing something on TV or that's supposed to be in a proscenium, then, then there might be reasons to just stand in place for variety artists. I don't think Michael Davis does much dancing. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to don't because have to. he was doing a style of performance that was different where it's about the comedy and the audience. And so it's not like every act has to be this way. No. But if you do have the opportunity where there you are on a stage, and that's where dance training helped me, not just in getting choreographic ideas, but the endurance. Like in four or five steps, I would cover a giant stage. Yeah, you have to fill it. Because I would use this lunge step and could do that with juggling. If I hadn't taken dance for years, I wouldn't have been able to do that. But uh, in learning how to cover the space. And when I was taking dance, they would emphasize that to us because it was choreographers that ran the schools I went to. I went to the Christine Newbert School at one point. She would really emphasize in her work and in getting us to be creative and think, use the whole stage. Don't just do a dance that goes from left to right or on one diagonal like you would tend to do in an exercise. Really use the whole stage and involve the audience and think of the audience perspective that way and how it will look different to them when you come forward or back or use the whole space in the expression of it. That makes and, me think of a great act you had in your show, 
who did that exact same thing where they would use the stage so well. You'd have these guest performers. What's your experience working with Ilka Licht and Luke Wilson? Because they, they epitomize mm. what you're talking about. What was that experience like? Oh, thanks. Yeah, we worked with Luke and Ilka. Another very exciting for us because we'd all met in Edinburgh. Later, I went back as a fringe performer with Shafe Relove and the Freedom Family Circus. But this was one of the European conventions, and Carter and I were performing as soloists on the program. And Luke and Ilka were also invited performers, and we were all together in this VIP crash space <laughs> in tents and stuff. Sounds fun. We would get together and juggle. We found ourselves getting together and passing, the four of us. And we were like, gee, we'd love to do this together. But there they were in Europe and we were in the U.S. And then a theater, the Carpenter Center in California, where you are, mm -hmm. if you know this place in Long Beach, California, it was named for the Carpenter Singers, right? Well, I'm, I'm in San Francisco now, but that must have been uh, a place I'm not familiar with. Yeah, they, they had said, well, what would you do for us if we could give you a slightly bigger budget? Oh. Could you do a bigger show for us? We said, yeah, we want to work with these European guest artists. And they're like, fine, nice. go for it. So Luke and Ilka came. We had recently moved to Boulder then. There was no circus center then, although I think Ilka was giving us advice about what was an empty shed at the time or a pole barn. Okay. Uh, it was just a totally empty shell of a building. So we couldn't really utilize that then. But we were rehearsing at the Dairy Center for the Arts, which is the downtown performing arts center in boulder uh, nowadays there are a lot of aerial acts there are a lot of creative work being done in fact i even collaborated with the nutcracker ballet following in the footsteps of kazaya tannenbaum and john held and worked with peter and tom wall and another dancer from the company and I do these uh jeffrey the, the passing back and forth sorry everyone in juggling has the same name maybe there aren't so many cindy's <laughs> look out this way well this is a wonderful experience you had with them they did their act, so you had guest artists, so not everybody did a full tour. This was a very special one-time performance, or how many performances did you get to do with them? Luke and Ilka did a specific season because we had to rehearse from scratch. So normally somebody oh. joined the show with a year-long contract, and sometimes they, they could decide to stay more than a year. I did it about 17 years. <laughs> yes. Largely, I found myself married to Carter and with the kid that we had together, Stan and James Marvel Brown, right? who got into the act. Luke and Ilka were with us for like a six-week rehearsal period, the culmination of which was several shows that we did at the Carpenter Center, and that was kind of the last part of our tour. And I remember afterwards, we came back through Las Vegas and had a rendezvous at Dick Franco, Francis's home, and Lottie Brunn was visiting, and we had a lot nice. of fun with Noel and so on. So they were with us for that one period of time, and we put together a five-person version of Drumble which was that drum act I had initiated as a solo and then worked with different performers. I love to get more and more performers into it because everybody's got a hand drum and two balls. I remember Jeff Damont coming up with an original move where you roll the drum over the back of your hand. Uh, everybody who tried it could come up with something original to add to it, to the technique. Let's, let's describe the act a little bit so people can visualize it. Tell us exactly what drumble is and what, what, what kind of props it includes and a couple of the moves. Well, it could have some bigger and some smaller drums that I haven't quite involved yet, but it has a drum, are they 17 inches across? And it's a standard Remo hand drum, basically. It's got a rim, right? You roll the ball on the rim. And you don't want any tuning fixtures on it. It's a little challenging because they're not made for juggling. Hmm, so you would yeah. wish sometimes as the design changes that it's a little different and you stand off parts of it or shave down parts of it and I paint the rims and everything. A set prop designer we had and a marketing director, Maya Robbins-West, came up with this way to attach lighting gel to the inside of the drum. 
Nice. And in one solo that I do, that Ilka did with me, uh, you roll the ball around the inside of the drum. So it's like a form of contact juggling. It's not total contact juggling, but it's a little bit like that. And I can balance the drum and keep the ball in it. Okay, I don't do a ton of contact juggling. I like to take classes that they can get me to go a little further with it. But I'm not an expert with head rolls and all this. But that gave me a chance to elongate juggling. And it's a very different atmosphere. It's kind of a new agey, dancey atmosphere, more than like the really rhythmic vaudeville juggling style or circus style that we're so used to with juggling, where it's very upbeat. And so I, I was originally using Kodo drum music. I was inspired by the Kodo drummers of Japan, the Taiko drummers, uh-huh. if you know this style, where they're very physical. I love to watch those groups where they dance around and they make all these different shapes with their arms as they turn around different ways and play the drums and in a very movement-oriented way. This originated on an island in Japan and became popular in the U.S. around that time, in the late 80s, early 90s. And so Luke and Oka had this very complicated act they did. We, we also did a five-person club passing act. And Luke Wilson in particular would use a computer or his knowledge of site swap and advanced uh, patterns, and he came up with some original patterns for us to do. The whole thing has a lot of original patterns with the club act and the drums, and those I finally posted on my website so that people can see them. Let's talk about a trip you were on. It was very weird because we had a haggis talk about it. You were also on this very famous trip that uh, jugglers took to Tbilisi, Georgia, in Russia. What's your memories of that trip? Oh, yes. Well, I've been to Russia once on a class trip before. And at that time, I saw the Moscow Circus and the Leningrad Circus. By the way, it was the Leningrad Circus that had this large troop of female jugglers. Never saw anything like it before or since. Doing Diablos with all lengths of strings and throwing them back and forth and doing uh, unison precision fast club juggling. So this is my second trip to Russia, though Tbilisi was changing then. In fact, uh, at that time, Gorbachev had just been arrested, and we didn't know if the whole tour would be canceled. So jugglers assembled at the, a lot of us were at the EJC in Italy that year, and I think Haggis was an organizer there in in making that happen. And he had been talking to getting us together and saying, okay, so here's what it's going to be like. We're all going to assemble in Berlin and take Airflot to Tbilisi. Now, I ended up writing a story about this for Juggler's World, the magazine, the print magazine. Really only the second story I had written, the first was on the back cover for All Our Yesterdays. It was about the performer Mel Odie. Name was Melody, but Mel Odie, a vaudeville performer. So this is my second story for Juggler's World. And so I have vivid memories of noting down everything that happened. I, I felt very responsible. By the time I wrote this, I was a performer with the Pickle Family Circus the next season. And we're still working on it. And that was my baptism by journalism. And that was the story that led, in some ways, to writing for the New York Times later about New Vaudevillians. To go to the festival itself, since we're talking to jugglers here about juggling, yeah. <laughs> just writing about it. What happened and how did we do it? The idea was that Haggis had been an actor with a group in Tbilisi at a theater there. And that was how he got the idea to do this. And he was organizing it along with Lee Hayes, who's an American, who's based in Amsterdam. And the two of them were organizing this together. And so they got together about 100 jugglers from all different countries. There were people from New Zealand. There were the oddball jugglers from England who I had a history with performing as a college student and later and so on. I wrote a poem about this called Coastal Exchange, part of which I've juggled to. While we were there, the the country was having an uprising. I mean, it was like a civil war. And so there were hunger strikers all over the streets and everything. There were demonstrations going on. There were barricades. And yet somehow we were safe. We stayed with families there. And there was this big circus ring where the Tbilisi State Circus was performing. Also, there were a lot of visiting jugglers from the Moscow Circus who I wrote about. 
Sasha, one of them, this very interesting, wonderful lady my age. Okay, girl, lady, woman my age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was in my early 20s then, I guess, uh, who had trained with the Moscow Circus and talked to me about what that was like for her. It's a tough regimen. I got the feeling it's a real regimen. And everybody would joke when the Soviets went in the ring and started juggling that they'd be doing it for 12 hours, right? And so they were just at another level with numbers than most of us. You were also involved in another uh, project about female jugglers. Tell me about Trailblazers, the film, and the producers. Trailblazers is a documentary on women who juggle, female jugglers. There are many male jugglers in the production also because many women worked in troops and we wanted to include that. So we interviewed what we had in mind were about six performers being in this and then it it spread out to many, many performers getting involved in doing interviews and sending us performance footage. And this came about because Connie Leverton, Paprika as she is now known, is a filmmaker who is a unicyclist and got into juggling and approached me about this project. We became friends when she came with the Austin Juggling Club to see us at the Paramount when we did Laser Vaudeville there uh, in Austin, Texas. And uh, we got to know each other and kept in touch. This is what she does is, is camera work and so on. And so this project came about and she later made a sequel that also screened at the IJ. They both did, which was wonderful for us to be able to show these films there. The sequel while I am in the sequel, it was pre-recorded footage that was included, and it tells a lot about the island of Tonga, if you're aware of this island where the girls and women juggle tikka nuts. Yeah, Barry, Barry and I actually took a cruise, and we stopped in Tonga, and we met some of the juggling women there, but it seemed as if it was more a thing that their grandparents had done, that the modern women of Tonga, the tradition of juggling, had sort of fallen by the wayside, unfortunately. A lot of the older women could still uh, do the shower of four or five balls. That makes sense. And at one point, I remember there was a seven-ball shower juggler who had the record at that time. Now there are people who do more. But at one point, a a juggler from Tonga actually uh, held the world record for juggling seven in a shower pattern. Well, that was their traditional pattern. That makes a lot of sense. That's a wonderful film. It has a lot of the female trailblazers in juggling. And while we're checking out, that's Paprika Leverton is the producer of that and a very talented juggler and performer in her own right. There's been lots of discussion about women in juggling. And as a very influential woman yourself, what can we do as a community to encourage more women to juggle and get involved in the IJA? Well, that's a really great question. I find that if I'm the one teaching or organizing event or so on, it will naturally draw more women, even if it's people who are beginners, just because they see that I'm doing it. The more you do involve women, the more likely people are to approach you about things and think that this is a possibility for them. Beyond that, a lot of us feel that when people sort of look at the field themselves, they sometimes don't see everything that's there. This is what has been shown in all kinds of minorities and diversity. And if you want to improve things, often people feel like, and I think uh, Aaron and Taylor mentioned this, people often feel like, well, gosh, I don't know anyone or I don't want to just keep asking the same two or three people. And there doesn't seem to be anybody out there. Sometimes it helps to involve a few other people, form a committee if you need to, but to make a bigger cert for talent that's there. Because women and minorities can sometimes become invisible to an extent. And so there may be more people than you think and that others know of 
uh, that you could involve. Because it's true, it feels like tokenism when you just sort of go and ask one person to do it or the same few people always doing it. Beyond that, maybe having some events to promote women and minorities and juggling, you could have a showcase to that effect. Like at the EJC, sometimes they have national showcases. I'll be honest, I'm not absolutely sure that shining the spotlight on these groups in that manner, I think it would be helpful, actually. I really do. I think the fact that I feel uncertain just speaks to our lack of confidence with this, that having shows that would highlight diversity, um, like the Special Olympics, jugglers from other cultures, so on, jugglers from minorities in America, various ways, I do think putting on more events, like a showcase or a show or something, would naturally attract more people and make it seem more viable to many. You know, while I'm mentioning that, I know it's not exactly related, but thank you, Dan, for starting the three club and the individual prop contest. I actually did the three ball one one year. I I think those are terrific, and, and it shows, like, if you start an event like that, it will draw so many people in. What I loved about it was that in addition to giving me a chance to compete in these and put together acts, I often put together longer acts and performed them at the European conventions, which used to be later in the year and on other occasions. And I just wanted to thank you for doing that. I think some degree of adventurousness to put on events like that, just like we put together trailblazers, initially thinking, okay, we'll do six people and we're done. And it turned out to be so many more people (laughs) wishing to be included. So, uh, and that we're included. And so I think that kind of proactiveness is really great for for the field. That makes a lot of sense, uh, Cindy. And hopefully I'll have a chance to put on another festival. I've thrown my name into the ring for 2022 when it's back in Cedar Rapids. And I'll definitely make an effort if I do the festival to include more women and more shows that highlight the great diversity. Like you say, that's kind of hidden that we need to look for and encourage and get more people involved in the wonderful uh, world of juggling. Thanks for that great answer, Cindy. Okay, thank you. Thanks. You're also very interested in writing and entertainment. Let's talk about some of your other writing. You wrote wrote a young adult novel. Tell me about the Shadow Princess, an Indonesian story. How'd you come to write a novel? Yes, well, I'd always had an interest in writing. In school, I was one of the people who would write in a journal and then want to read my stories out loud to the group, as we could sign up to do. And I wrote poetry also. It was my idea to write poetry in the journal. And actually, the novel has snatches of poetry in it, too, as I've written some poems about juggling. This novel was not written when I was in a class, although, like yourself, I'd signed up for some creative writing classes. I took a short story class at the New School for Social Research in Manhattan, finished it by correspondence when I was in Oklahoma. That was before they had all these online programs. Shadow Princess, an Indonesian story, was written in collaboration with an actual shadow puppeteer. Tamara Fielding. Now, as you can tell by her name, her family immigrated to the U.S. She had grown up in Java during World War II when she was a kid. Her family was in a Japanese internment camp, okay, kind of like a concentration camp. There's some pretty tough stories about that. And because her father was Dutch and her mother was Indonesian, they sort of got on the run and everything. And then they, they escaped to Holland first. And then she was in Paris and became an actress and was in the motion pictures Lust, Lust for Life and Trapeze. Wow. And then when I was doing that series, what became a series on new vaudeville performers, after the first one, I would pitch stories to various editors. This came about because my mother, by that time, having spent years becoming a music journalist, 
she doesn't like to call herself a critic, but she's, she was often reviewing concerts all night. That's the toughest job because the newspaper for regular people, as it were, comes out in the morning. These are real newspapers, right? I don't think yeah. that trade magazine. What we have in juggling is more like a trade publication for, so you have a little more time to write the stories usually, right? I've done a few that were last minute if they needed something, okay? You got to see the show, form an opinion really fast and write a review of people. Because I always thought that would be the most high pressure um, kind of writing to do. Right, all the same night. That's, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. I have a little more latitude in how long I can spend on things and the creativity in which I can tie in different things I want to say about performers that I know, rather than having to form an opinion about people I don't know and their performance and all of this. And so um, I would pitch stories to them. And one story I did was on Tamara Fielding. That was right before I got married in the year 2000. The story came out. And Tamara had been a performer on the same circuit as us. And we met at these booking arts conferences where they would have showcases. And we were at the one in New England one year uh, when we struck up a conversation because I had been to Saudi Arabia with Laser Vaudeville. Another adventure story of ours that mm. I wrote about in Cascad, yep. Juggle Magazine. You've had many adventures, Cindy, many adventures. Yes, at Inside Arts being the publication of APAP, as some people know, the um, Association for Performing Arts and um, Presenters. So tomorrow and I would meet each other at these events and we would talk about all of a sudden I understood what it would be like to perform in a Muslim culture. And she would say when she went back to do her performances, women aren't supposed to do shadow puppetry there. They're educated in how to make the puppets. They have some degree of participation, but they're not supposed to be Dalangs. That's a D-A-L-A-N-G. Now, this book has a glossary of terms. Is that what your story is about, that uh, a woman who tries to become a shadow puppetress? Yes, it's about a girl Again, it's a young adult novel, like the one you wrote. The girl is supposed to be a teenager. And right. it doesn't really pin down what age she is, because what we learned about the genre, it's better to have a character who's something like 15. They called it a phantom 15, meaning you don't have to pin down the age group, but something 15 being an age that's relatable, because older teenagers can relate to the age, and younger teenagers can. I said I'd never heard that. It's very interesting. I just sort of picked an age... Uh... At random. Whereas if you have a character who's 11, then some teenagers will think it's a kid's book and won't relate gotcha. to it so much, right? That's and they can't really get into the same kind of themes that a, that a 15-year-old can or, or thereabouts. So the character doesn't really have an age. And again, as you found, I'm sure it's very difficult to write a young adult novel if you're not used to it. It's a different voice. You have to find your narrative voice. And I'm sure at times I did that more successfully than others. Hmm. But I'd always loved young adult literature growing up, right? Like Susan Cooper, great influence on me as a writer and as a reader, because I was so into it. Uh, teachers recommended I read the Narnia books, books many people have read, the Oz books. But with me, I would try to write a fantasy story like this. In fact, one I'm trying to finish that leaves off at a very exciting point. I had forgotten what that story was like, and my mom found these journals and, and gave them to me in recent years, and I was like, whoa. And then I was like, how could I leave off this cliffhanger? <laughs> so I'm trying to finish it now. Tell me about this MFA you just completed in the entertainment writing class you took. Yes, well, it was a few years back. It was a tremendous challenge for me to complete this program. I didn't wind up being a degree student in the national sense, but learned a tremendous amount working on screenwriting, TV writing, animation writing, a lot of things I thought I would never try. I was attracted to it as a creative writing program, which I had often been drawn to, to learn something connected to drama and something like playwriting. But in this case, it was uh, screenwriting. And so 
it was very challenging, but uh, a lot of fun to do and come up with some very fantastical ideas, a totally different kind of writing from what I'd experienced in a narrative voice where you say what the character is thinking in this whole background. Actually, what they've told me since, I took some similar workshops in the Hollywood area, and they told me that it's often better to write these ideas as a novel. So now I'm working on a sequel novel to the Shadow Puppet story that I mentioned earlier, the Indonesian story, in which the character is a bit older, as a teenager, what happens next? And it involves a little more mature plot and fantasy elements. Well, let's talk about a few more shows you had a chance to do, some very prestigious ones. Tell me about your shows at the Kennedy Center. This was in recent years. It was really exciting to be hired for this. It, there's a family series that takes place in the Millennium Dome, which actually has quite a nice stage. I didn't really know what to expect until I got there. And it's not just people milling around. Everybody knows that around 6 p.m. there's a free show that goes on every day. There are all these families there in the audience. And I worked with a musical ensemble, the Alexandria Sextet, that sent me music. Uh, Sean Grisham leads this group, and he's an electronic cellist. I play cello in my spare time. So it was a really uh, nice mix. And Michael Bongar, I believe, recommended me for this opportunity. I'd worked with his partner, Beth Bongar, at one point in an all-woman's juggling show, Lady Fingers, which we then did at Lincoln Center with Kaziah and Rachel Henley, to mention a few others. Tell me about your future plans a little bit. So we're having this time of the, of the pandemic. When do you plan for the circus school to open up fully again? Well, it is open in that I think people can sign up to do what they want. Okay. We have uh, usually our, yeah, there might be a slight limit on capacity, but most of our events are not over the capacity that we can have now. And so gotcha. it's open for jugglers and flow artists to come back. We're still nice. holding those places on Wednesday and Sunday nights. You can check the website, bouldercircuscenter.net. And you talked about your desire and your talent at choreographing other jugglers. Is that something people can contact you about if they want to have that special Cindy Marvel touch to their routines? Can they call you and have you do some coaching over Zoom? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Some oh, jugglers good. I've done that with before include uh, Doug Sayers, who ultimately won the Lucas Cup himself, uh, some years after we'd worked together at the Circuit Center. And they can contact you through your website. Is that correct? Yes, they can find my email there at Gmail, Cindy Marvel at Gmail. Because I want to set you up for the future with, with wonderful jugglers to choreograph and stories to write. And I want you to leave us right now, our listeners, for Drop Everything, with a little poem about juggling from Cindy Marvel. And this one is from Suspended Animation Magazine, and it's called Magic Carpet. Forever poised for flight, arranged with care, the seven weight to be exchanged midair. A moment of release, a change so rare, the forces of the world are held at bay. When kept in flight, they weave, whose untied threads are ever free to leave. This hopeless task may never be achieved, for all too soon the balls forsake their play. Though now my work dissolves before my eyes, sometimes... The cloth remains to soar through skies above the seven on the floor and flies with me to seek exchanges far away. And drop everything except when you're juggling. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Cindy. That was fun. Thank, thank you so you, much. Dan. Cindy Marvel. One of the, one of the, she beat me in the competitions, but she's still number one in my heart. Thanks, Cindy. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dan. 
You're a true gentleman juggler. I hope you enjoy Drop Everything Podcast number 95, my conversation with the fantastic and wonderful Cindy Marvel. Thank you, Cindy. Her book, Shadow Princess, an Indonesian Story, can be found at Amazon.com, along with my book, Alex the Great. All right, go visit the IJ at juggle.org, go out in the world and drop everything, except when you're juggling.